Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." It's good to see everyone this morning. Before we get into the message, uh, I, I just wanted to t- thank the, uh, the, the search committee who, I mean, they worked for a year and went through a lot of candidates until we landed on Jacob. Uh, if you were on that search committee, uh, would you stand for just a moment? I want to recognize you. I don't know if, if any of them are here this morning, or maybe there's some, yep, there's one at least, and uh, others are, aren't able, to, they've had to socially distance and stay home, and, and I wanted to especially thank uh, Elise Bosher for her leadership of this entire team and the others who participated. Uh, we just wrapped up something uh, last week here at the church. Um, it was Roar, and uh, man, we had a phenomenal time. I want to, again, thank a couple of guys, uh, Scott Calvert and uh, Chris Donovan. We had, uh, I think, around 156 children involved in ROAR this year. Uh, There was about 180 adults or so showing up every Saturday morning between coaches and assistants and parents. So we had three to 400 people on that field over there every Saturday. So guys, thank you for the great work and all the volunteers who helped bring this about these last couple of months. So speaking of those children, you know, recently I, I saw several of our children, they were playing and they were laughing. And, you know, it's kind of interesting how you can already begin to see the personalities of children through the way they laugh, right? You know, you have the silly laugher, and you have the shy laugher, and then you have, you know, the belly laugher, right? And uh, we've, all, we've all kind of seen this. And, and it's interesting how people's personalities come through their laughter. We, we all have somebody we know, maybe we are that person who uh, snorts when they laugh, you know, they, at some point. And then we've all probably been at a party or been in a social setting where uh, the, the situation is made exponentially more hilarious because of the way somebody laughs at the joke that maybe wasn't even all as funny as it, but they, they go into convulsions and they start you know, having seizures and they can't breathe and the, their response makes the whole thing funnier, right? Uh, the way that, way that kind of works. Um, it's interesting how we, we laugh in different ways. Uh, we also, you know, there's also different forms of laughter. The nature of laughter is different. We've all watched a movie, right? And the supervillain is now about to finally, you know, take his vengeance on the hero. And before he, you know, does his deed, he, he'll laugh, right? And there'll be some kind of maniacal, <laughs> you know, whatever, right? You know, that's not a nice laugh, right? It's a maniacal, evil laugh. And every one of us, I guarantee every one of us has been in a situation where we have done the polite laugh, 
right? Somebody says something that they think is funny and it's really not all that funny, but you don't want to be rude and insult them. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's just, there's different, right? Thank you, thank you, thank you doing it to me. You guys are awake this morning, that's awesome, right? So we, you understand where I'm coming from here. Uh, and what's so, so what's kind of interesting is how we see the different forms of laughter surrounding the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Now let's review real quick. Remember back in chapter 12, Abraham's 75 years old and God has told him to leave his homeland and go to a nation, to a country that he will show him, a land that he will show him. And he promises him that if he does this and he goes to this land, it will be his land and he will have the seed a descendant that will bless all of the nations. And he does this, he leaves and he travels and he ends up settling in Canaan, right? A few years after this, God comes to him in a vision and he, he begins to talk to Abraham and Abraham brings up the fact, Lord, you still have not given me a son. And so I've met, made Eleazar my, my servant, my heir, because I don't have a son. And, and God says, no, 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 you're going to have a son. And at that point, he, he cuts a covenant. He makes that covenant with Abraham where we looked at in Genesis 15, the pieces of the animals are cut apart and God walks between the pieces and says, if what I'm telling you does not come true, may I be torn apart because this is evidence that I am not a trustworthy, faithful, good God, and I deserve to be destroyed, right? Well, 10 years go by from the time that covenant is made. Still no son. And so Sarah, she takes matters into her own hands and she sends in her servant girl, Hagar, to be the surrogate. And lo and behold, through that relationship, a son is born, Ishmael. And, and Abraham obviously loves Ishmael for when we come to chapter 17, and God is once again interacting with Abraham on this matter of a son. He tries to, to negotiate with God and propose that Ishmael be the promised seed. We read in verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, Sarah, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is the first time in the Bible, chapter 17, where laughter is mentioned for the first time. We see it here. Let me just, I'm having problems here. Technical, sorry, folks. Let me get rid of this thing. Okay. So let me ask you a question. How would you describe Abraham's laughter in this passage? He falls on his face before God and he begins to laugh. Is this a, a laughter of worship and faith or is it something else? So many commentators will say that this is Abraham expressing faith. He's overcome with joy and he laughs as a result. But others see another form of laughter. It's a, a form of laughter that I know I'm familiar with. It's the, it's the skeptical laughter of unbelief, right? Now they're divided about Abraham. Which form of laughter is it? Is it laughter of faith or is it laughter of unbelief? But where no one is divided, is when it comes to the next chapter in chapter 18. 
It's clearly, at chapter 18, the form of laughter that's being expressed, that this is what comes out of Sarah. So if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 18 for a moment, or your Bible app, turn to it. We're going we're gonna to sit here for a while in chapter 18. We're going to look at these verses. You know, this is a short time after God finalized the covenant in chapter 17. This is all within, you know, a couple of months. It has to be because we know in chapter 17 that Abram is 100 years old, and we're going to know that he has Isaac when he's 100 years old. So all of these events are occurring in a very short period of time, right? So one hot day, Abraham is, you know, sitting under his tent, the awning of his tent in the shade to get out of the heat. By this time, basically think of Abraham in this way. He is a, a Bedouin sheik, right? He, he is a rich, powerful, influential man in this area of the world. He has hundreds of people who are in his household as either family members or servants or retainers or employees. He's very well respected. And one day he looks up and he sees three men walking towards his tent in the heat of the day. Now listen, there's certain obligations in that time when it comes to hospitality. You know, you should, you should maybe give them some bread and drink and, and take care of them and then send them on their way. But what you begin to see here with Abraham is something very different, right? He, he knows, he, at some point he recognizes there's something different about these three men. And so he runs to them and he bows before them and he says, hey, why don't you come in? Let me take care of you. And then he just springs into action, right? He runs back to the tent and says to Sarah, hurry, get three large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd. Now, now realize in that day and age, especially if you're an older, distinguished, chic type guy, you don't run, right? That is, uh, that is new. That's, for, that's, that's just new. That's breaking all kinds of norms. You only do this if there's something really important going on. So Abraham runs out to the herd and chooses a tender calf and gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. What's going on here? Abraham is going way beyond the norms for hospitality for three strangers who walk into your tent. He's putting on what is known as a royal feast. It's, it's much more than what I didn't read verse five when he says, why don't you come and let me give you a morsel of bread? No, he's going all out here. So the question is, why? Why does he react to these travelers in this way? And the answer is seen throughout the chapter. Beginning in verse three and even more clearly as the chapter proceeds and the next chapter as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah come along, two of these travelers are angels. And one of them is actually God himself who's taken on a human form. This is a good place for me to put before you a word. It's a word that you need to have in your biblical, your theological dictionary. Without knowing this word, without understanding this word, you don't understand stories like this in the Old Testament and many other places in the Old Testament. The word is theophany. Go ahead and sound intelligent. Say it with me. Theophany. Doesn't that just make you feel smarter this morning, right? 
So a, a theophany is a manifestation of God, frequently employed to denote a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ and therefore often called a Christophany. See, at strategic times in the Old Testament, God reveals himself, he reveals his will through special revelation in this manner. Uh, Jesus, guys, did not, Jesus was not created at the virgin birth. Jesus is eternal. It's, we, we serve one God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches us Jesus is the creator of the world. By him, all things are held together. And what you begin to see in the Old Testament is that Jesus at different times would temporarily take on a physical form and interact with or intercede on behalf of God's people. Good example of this. The, remember the story of the three Hebrew children in uh, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Right? They, they, re, they reject the commandment of Nebuchadnezzar to bow and to worship the false god, and so he passes upon them a death sentence, and they, they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And if you remember that story, there's a particular point where Nebuchadnezzar thinks they're toast, and he looks down into the furnace, and he says, didn't we three, fall, throw three guys in there? So why do I see four, and the fourth is as, has the appearance as if he's the, the son of God? This is one of many times when Jesus will take on human flesh and a human appearance for a brief period of time before his ultimate incarnation, which brought us our salvation at the first advent. It's interesting at that first advent when Jesus presented himself to the Israelites as their Messiah and he began to ratchet up the teaching that yes, he was the promised one. He was God in the flesh. At one point, he refers back to his interaction with Abraham. In John chapter eight, he's speaking to these Israelites who are arguing with him and rejecting his deity and he says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, and then he uses that title that every Israelite was familiar with because of the story of Moses and the burning bush. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. So this event, I can't help but wonder if Jesus isn't thinking about that meal under the oaks of Mamre with Abraham when Abraham understands what is about to happen. So this is so close on the heels of chapter 17. It does beg the question, why? Why does Jesus show up like this in this way? Especially after, you know, you've had the, the, the cutting of the covenant and then chapter 17 where there's this you know, vivid interaction with Abraham where he tells him, Sarah's gonna have a son. You're gonna name him Isaac. You know, all of this is gonna take place. And then all of a sudden, you know, some short, at least within three months, the Lord shows up again. Why does he do this? I would contend that the reason why he shows up is for the sake of Sarah. 
You see, they're sitting there eating, right? They're enjoying their meals. Sarah, as though it's the custom of the day, was in the tent nearby. And of course, you know, you're not talking about insulated RVs, guys. She can hear everything that's going on. And, and they're eating the meal. And as they eat the meal, notice what the Lord says. Where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And every woman here who some of you just muttered, you understand why you would do this, right? You want to know what's going on. And the Lord knew that she was doing this. And he's speaking. Who's he speaking to? He's already told Abraham this news. He's doing this for Sarah's benefit, I think. Abraham had all these interactions with God through the 25 years, right? Think about Sarah. She's really been a secondhand bystander. Her faith is is really based upon everything her husband has told her. But on this day, she has a personal encounter with God, something we all, church, must have if we're going to become a member of his eternal family, if we're going to be reconciled to him and have a vibrant relationship with him. We know that Sarah has struggled with the stigma of infertility, which was huge back in that day. Not being able to have a child, or especially a son, was a deeply shameful in that culture. So we know she struggled with this. We know that she struggled with unbelief. We know that she rejected what she had been told and took matters into her own hands with Ishmael and Hagar and the results of that sin have affected the Middle East throughout, even to this very day. The consequences of that sin are felt by humanity. But now she hears this statement that she's going to have a son within the year. What's her response? What does she do? She laughs. The Bible tells us in verse 18, now, or verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Let me ask you a question. How would you describe this form of laughter, right? Is it supervillain evil laughter? Is that a laughter of faith? How would you describe it? Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Having lived everything that you've lived and experiencing the shame that you've experienced and you hear this and you can't help but laugh. What's the form of your laughter gonna be? I'm gonna, I'm gonna count to three. And when I count to three, I want you to turn to somebody near you or behind you, and I want you to laugh in a way that you think communicates what was going on in her heart and mind. Got it? Ready? One, two, three. Yeah. You guys nailed it, right? I mean, did any of you laugh thinking her laughter was the laughter of vibrant faith and belief? Anybody? How many of you think the laughter that she was expressing was skeptical, cynical doubt and unbelief? Raise your hand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what's going on here. You can hear her cynicism, her unbelief, her hurt. You can hear it 
in the way that she expresses herself. She, she uses really crude language. In the Hebrew, uh, there's a, she's using crude expressions to say, essentially, because of to be polite with little ears, she is way beyond menopause, and the days of sexual intimacy are long gone, and she has no desire for it anymore. She's past it. She's over it. Done. Moving on. Okay? This is what she's expressing here. I guarantee, I'd bet good money that in this laugh, there is a lot of pent-up emotion and pain and doubt and even anger at God underlying that laugh that day as she heard those words. Something I think that many of us can probably relate to in one way or another. Some of us, right? We've prayed for years and years and years for that loved one, that family member to come to know Jesus Christ. And we talk about it and somebody just says, you just need to pray that God will, and you want to just, he's never going to believe. And a little laugh. Or, or maybe there's marital problems going on and it's been going on for quite some time. And somebody in your discipleship group encourages you to pray for your wife and pray for your husband. And you hear that and you hear that. And finally you just, <laughs> she's never going to change. He's never going to be what he needs to be. You know, through the years, I got to tell you, I'm ashamed of the number of times that I laughed this way. Those of us who've gone through severe personal um, or emotional trauma, uh, those of you uh, of us who've, who've maybe gone through uh, an extended period of spiritual testing and trials that are outside the norm that have come with life, I mean, these are biggies that come out of left field and, and they just they wallop you. Um, we can get so disillusioned with God and really, we can get so self-centered and so petulant and so arrogant that our interaction with God and our response to him is this kind of cynical, skeptical laughter of unbelief. The gap between our reality and what we know the Bible tells us about God or what we are experiencing in our moment uh, Terry, trial and tribulation, that, that gap between what he promises and who he says he is and what we're experiencing, it's so great. We, we can't, you can't deal with it. You, you, you struggle with it and you try to make sense of it. And so we resort to the skeptical laughter and the posture of the cynic or the doubter or the one who's filled with unbelief. I'm so glad that God met Sarah, and God meets us with grace at these times of doubt. He gives us grace and not what we deserve. Sarah, I mean, she not only laughs at God, she then lies to his face, right? She doubled down on it, man. Uh, verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Our Lord met Sarah's unbelief and sin with grace. 
He doesn't explode and pull rank on her in the face of her life. He doesn't say, who do you think you are? Do you think I can be wrong, Sarah? Do you think my ears weren't working well? Do you think I don't even know what you're thinking? You're lying to your creator? What has gotten into you? I mean, let's face it. Wouldn't we be tempted to at least go there to a certain degree with someone like that who lies to our face? And God doesn't do this, right? He looks right past her crude, self-incriminating, self-condemning words that revealed her shame and all that she thought about herself. He looks right past that. God does not see Sarah the way Sarah sees Sarah. Instead, he understands what's going on in her heart and in her life. No, but you did laugh. I can't help but wonder when the Lord said that to Sarah, if he didn't say it with a little smile or maybe his own little laugh of compassion. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. All all of us here probably have have interacted with children either as parents or siblings or babysitter. You get the idea. And, and, And at some point, you know, maybe the child, you walk in on the child and there is chocolate everywhere. There's crumbs everywhere. The evidence is everywhere. And you look at them and say, did you get into the cookies? And they look up at you with those little eyes and they say, what? No, I didn't eat the cookies. How do you respond, mom and dad, at that moment in time? You little ingrate. Of course not. Because as a sinner, you know what's being manifested in their heart and in their life right now. You understand what's going on. And and you try not to smile because you want to make it serious because lying is serious and you certainly don't want to laugh. But sometimes you just can't help yourself, right? And you just go... (laughs) Oh, really? Right? I I wonder if that's, I can't help but think, no, but you did laugh. You know, our Lord responds with love and grace to Sarah, just as he will do to another woman 2,000 years later. The Jewish religious police bring this woman who's caught in adultery. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. They say, we've caught her in adultery. Now judge her. Take care of this. And what does Jesus do? He kneels down in the sand and he begins to write words. That's one of these mysteries when we get to heaven. We're going to find out what did Jesus write? Was he writing their sins? What, the, the people who were killed, we don't know. But soon, every one of those accusers begins to slink away in shame. And when they had all left, Jesus turns to her and he refuses to condemn her. Instead, he gives her grace and tells her, stop the adultery, follow me. And he calls out what is the unbelief that is leading to this life. And he does it gracefully. Listen, for every one of us this morning who needs God's grace, God is offering it to us through his son, Jesus. Even those of us who've laughed with unbelief, who've laughed with cynicism and skepticism, who've rejected his goodness and refused to see it this morning, God stands ready. He stands ready to change our skeptical laughter of unbelief to the other form of laughter that we see, 
the joyous laughter of true worship. Turn over to Genesis chapter 21. In Genesis 21, this storyline concludes, this portion of their story concludes. In verse one, we read this. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would, and Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. God gives them a son, Isaac, whose name means he laughs or laughter. Through this son, he changes the laughter of Sarah's unbelief into the soul-satisfying laughter of true worship. Her heart is so full of joy, and we may not see this in our English translation, but her heart is so full of joy that in verses six and seven, she's breaking out into a song. And her song paints to us why she's so full of laughter and why laughter would surround this child. Who could imagine? Who could imagine God doing something like this? Who could imagine God pouring out his grace on me after everything that I have done and experienced and now at this point of life, he pours out his grace on me? What have I done to deserve this? Absolutely nothing. And her only response is to laugh in delight, in wonder, in awe of God. She says, I laugh, I can't help, I gotta laugh. And then she says, and others will laugh with me. But here's the thing. We really don't know if she's saying others will laugh with me or others will laugh at me. There's a lot of ambiguity there. And you know, those who are more experienced with Hebrew language and culture than me are divided over it. And you can understand why it might be at me. Some will laugh at me. I don't care, laugh away, laugh at me. And you can understand why they would laugh. I mean, let's face it, the picture, just envision, a 90-year-old woman sitting there breastfeeding. Yeah, some of you were brave enough to laugh, right? I mean, that's, that's funny, guys. I mean, that's, that's something. Now, here's the thing. You can laugh at somebody and it be ugly, and you can laugh at somebody and it be scornful, right? And this is what happens. We're not going to go further into this chapter, but this is what happens with Ishmael. And he begins to scornfully laugh at uh, Sarah and at the child, the promised seed, and he rejects him. And his scornful laugh of this promised seed results in him being removed from the family of promise and forcing Abraham to make a difficult decision. But Sarah's laughter is what is most remarkable. Here's a woman who has nothing to commend herself to God so that he would intervene in this way. It's not like she's been the paragon of faith through the decades of this marriage. She's very much like the rest of us, ups and downs, faithful and faithless. 
It isn't our faith that prompts God to pour out his grace upon us. It's God's grace poured out upon us that prompts our faith. And this is what you see here in the story of Sarah when we receive God's grace that we don't deserve in any way and he pours it out upon us. What's the only normal, natural, right response? It's worship, it's laughter, it's rejoicing in God. When you see the evidence of God's grace in your life, is that the desire of your heart? Is that how you respond? We see it with Sarah. She laughs and rejoices and begins to worship when she experiences God's grace. This is important for us to grasp this morning. Worship is so important in our church. It's the bedrock of how we follow Jesus Christ we got to understand that the way we worship truly, joyful laughter, true worship, it comes by recognizing God's faithfulness and his goodness to us. Listen to the psalmist. He, he echoes this truth in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The Lord does great things for us. The Lord is so powerful. He can do great things in our lives. As he told Sarah and Abraham, nothing is too hard for the Lord. His grace can even overcome the root causes of whatever is driving the laughter of unbelief. And that overcoming grace that can overcome that kind of skepticism towards our Lord has a name, Jesus. 2,000 years later, from this event, the angel of God is going to show up again, right? And he's going to come to another woman, but this time a young woman, Mary, and tell her that she is pregnant. And she says, how can this be? I wonder if her laughter was a little skeptical at that point. What are you talking about? I'm a virgin. Impossible. And what does the angel say to Mary, for nothing is impossible with God. To confirm his, his miraculous power, he says, your cousin Elizabeth is also going to be with child. In fact, she is right now. And the thing about Elizabeth is she resembled very much Sarah. She was an older woman. All of her life, she had had the stigma of infertility that that culture put upon a woman, and she had borne that shame. And now, unbelievably, Elizabeth is pregnant, and she's carrying the child, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. Mary makes a trip. She wants to see if this is true. She goes and she visits Elizabeth, and when she sees what God has done in her life, and she realizes what God is doing in her, uh, in her own life, Ma Mary, like Sarah, breaks out in joyful song. 
And here's what she sings. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And then in her song, she goes all the way back to Abraham and says, this is who God is and this is how he's dealt with his people from Abraham and with all of his people ever since then. He has mercy for those who fear him and worship him. Some of you this morning, you may be more like Ishmael. If that's you, if you're the one who has been laughing with scorn at the promised child, Jesus, I want you to understand it's not too late to repent. It's not too late to turn from your scorn, from your unbelief, and to see him as he truly is, the ultimate theophany of God who came and he took on human flesh. He walked among us and then he died on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And he will meet you in all of your skepticism and all of your doubt in any of your unbelief if you will simply be willing to look at who he is and who he professes to be and what he has done. Many of us though this morning, we're more like Sarah. We have faith, we follow Jesus, but we've been weighed down in our walk with God. Perhaps we're not experiencing the, the joy of our salvation because of that skeptical laughter of unbelief, because we don't see his goodness and his love. I want you to know this morning that the, the true laughter of joyful worship, that soul-satisfying joy and delight that only God can bring can be yours. It starts, it starts by recognizing God's goodness and his faithfulness and his love towards you, which is personified in Jesus and what he's done for you and how he continually to continues to serve you and pour out his grace upon you each and every day. He, he, he sees you through the eyes of a loving savior. He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He sees you as God's child who he died for. And he offers you this grace this morning that will turn the skeptical laughter of unbelief and cynicism that's poisoning your life and your soul and he'll turn it into something that creates songs. Now listen, there's no shortcuts to this. I've had to live this out of my own life I'm here today because God broke through that with me in this way. And he poured out his grace like this. It happens by first repenting of your sin, recognizing your self-centeredness, your arrogance, your petulance. It happens by repenting of your sins and taking your eyes off of yourself. And instead, fixing them on the promised seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. When you do this, you will see he begins to heal 
all of those wounds that create the shame, that create the anger, that create the cynicism and the unbelief. And he'll restore you in the joy of your salvation. Heavenly Father, for those who hear my voice this morning who are in that situation right now, to different degrees or another, Lord, would you pour out your grace upon them. That grace that can't help but prompt faith and belief. Lord, so many of us this morning would say, I believe, but help me, Lord, with my unbelief. Because the unbelief is creating so many of the stresses and anxieties and troubles of our life. We may not have that joy that we once had in our Savior. Lord Jesus, would you help us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to fix our eyes on you, the only one who personifies grace. Father, I pray for the one who may be the Ishmael, who, who scornfully laughs at you. Lord Jesus, would you break through that hardened shell? Would you give them a heart that loves you so that they may believe? We ask this, Lord, for, for their good and for the glory of your name. Amen.